I'm glad to see you are pioneers and bold. And I, uh, I gave serious thought just to calling in and saying, you know, we should just think about what Michael and R.C. said last night, and that'd probably do us for a few weeks. I think those two fellows might turn into something. I don't know. <laughs> I've been known to speculate, so. Well, I'm here this morning to talk about the means of grace, and I don't know how familiar you are with that language, uh, but that's the Reformed way of talking about how it is that God operates in the world, how He does what He does. And uh, to, uh, to get us started, I want to tell you a story. It's not a very nice story, actually, but it's interesting. The, the, uh, the prayers had been offered. This was a, a worship service a long time ago. Prayers had been offered, and the, the promises of the gospel had been read, and and the minister actually had uh, declared that, the, uh, that everyone who believed, uh, believes the gospel uh, was forgiven. Uh, in fact, at one point in the service, even uh, the minister had said, if you don't believe uh, in Jesus as the only righteousness before God, if you're not trusting in Him, resting and receiving Jesus and His righteousness, you're still under judgment. And uh, the congregation had sung a psalm and then uh, the service was almost complete, and, and at the end of the service, they were administering Holy Communion. And two uh, princes, two, two noblemen, this is in Germany, came forward to receive communion during the service. They used to come down in the old days, down the middle aisle, and the minister would stand there and hand out communion uh, to those who came forward. In this case, they were deacons helping the the minister uh, to distribute communion, but uh, one of the deacons refused to give the cup to one or or two of these noblemen who came forward because he didn't think they were eligible to come to communion. The other deacon thought that they should have the cup, and the two deacons started fighting over the cup (laughs) during the middle of the uh, communion service. Well, it was an ugly scene, and uh, uh, in fact, the, the church authorities were so outraged that the superintendent of the church excommunicated the deacon who wouldn't give the cup uh, on the spot. With no trial, no hearing, uh, no counsel, uh, not very Presbyterian at all. It, it would take us several years to get to that point. And... <laughs> These are Germans, and they're very efficient and ruthless. This all happened in 1559 in, in a place called Heidelberg, Germany, and the, I won't bother you with the names of the fellows who were involved. This is a shocking story, and, and even as I, as I think of the scene of two men literally, physically struggling over the the cup and the Lord's Supper, you, uh, it's just absolutely contradictory to the whole nature of the Supper, which is really about the believer's union with Christ and the believer's union with, with other believers. The whole imagery of the Supper is one body uh, and, uh, and being one people and, and members of Christ and members of each other. But, but there's uh, one reason I like this story, and that's because uh, for, for, uh, for all the ugliness involved in this episode, at least these two uh, cats cared enough about what was happening to fight about the supper. They took it so seriously that they were willing, and they thought something really significant was taking place. They disagreed, actually. They represented two uh, very opposite views of the supper. And that was partly why they were arguing. That was really what was behind the the struggle, the physical struggle over the cup, was the theological struggle over the meaning of the cup and as uh, determining who was eligible to come to the Lord's table. The reason that they fought, obviously, is that they're sinful and and, uh, and, uh, wicked like all of us, but they cared enough to fight about that cup because they were both in their own ways convinced that God has pledged to operate in the lives of His people through things like sacraments. And so I tell that story 
because I, I fear that in our day and our age, we have lost that confidence that God has promised to operate, to work, to do things, to accomplish His purposes through those things that we call the means of grace. R.C. talked about that a little bit last night, and so I want to just expand on some of the things that he said. And I think the reason that we're, uh, to the degree this is true, I'm sure it's not true of anyone here, but but outside the walls of of this place, there are people I know who aren't very interested in things like means of grace, things like the sacraments. There are some congregations where the sacraments aren't even observed. Some of the leading voices and influences in contemporary evangelical theology today are writing books about Christian piety and Christian spirituality in which the sacraments, by that I mean baptism and the Lord's Supper, are not even mentioned. Now, if you had asked someone, a Protestant in the 16th century, I'm a historian and so all my stories are old and about dead people, Those are often the people I find the most interesting, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just a peculiarity. We are children of a time and an age that, unlike those folks in that time, are too spiritual. We are too spiritual for things, for physical things, earthy things, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and sometimes even preaching. A lot of, uh, as R.C. said last night, a lot of ickles. And if you don't know what that means, you'll have to listen to R.C.'s lecture so you can find out. A lot of ickles uh, in our time think of uh, the Sunday morning, Sabbath morning worship service as a, as a time really for the weaker brothers. That for truly strong Christians, you don't really need to be gathering together with God's people and hearing some fellow behind a a lectern or in a pulpit tell you, because the real spiritual life occurs privately in the closet or, or wherever, frequently maybe on the golf course. Apparently, there's a great deal of piety that happens on the golf course on Sunday morning. From what I hear, well, the Lord's name is invoked quite a lot, so there's at least (laughs) prayer. And if if hitting your golf balls into the water is a form of baptism, I suppose that, (laughs) I don't know. Well, why are we so spiritual that we don't need the sacraments anymore? Well, it's a long, long answer, but the short answer is that In the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, there were a couple of episodes in American religious religious history that are known as the First and Second Great Awakening. And uh, and as a consequence of these two episodes, uh, we began to redefine what it is to be spiritual in terms of having what sometimes are called mountaintop experiences. And so a lot of Christians live their Christian life in search of mountaintop experiences. How many times have you been with people who, who co- who've come away from a service in which they said, man, we really worship the Lord today? And, and when I hear that, I think, well, okay, what did we do last week? And what did we do the week before? And what did we do the week before then? What is it about this particular service that makes this person say, well, today, in a, in a distinct and unique way, we worship the Lord. And what they mean is, we had a particularly intense religious experience. We had an emotional experience. We had a psychological experience, and it was very intense. And that comes to be described as worship. And since the middle of the 19th century, there have actually been people, and, I, and I, again, I'm, I'm sure this doesn't happen here. I, I'm confident it doesn't. But it does in, in places. I know because I've talked to people who've done it, that where people gather before a service, the, the week before a service, and they plan, and that's fine. You should plan for a service. Uh, we're Presbyterians. Everything should be done decently and in order. You don't want this spirit breaking out and making things <laughs> messy. I, I used to pray with some Pentecostal friends in Kansas City, and after a while, 
uh, the, the minister of the, of the church invited me to his office, and he, he asked me if I wanted to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and I thought about it for a minute, and I, and I declined. Uh, <laughs> only because I didn't really think he had them. I thought... <laughs> Because we had tried to heal this fellow's knee and it didn't work, and I figured if we were, if, if this fellow's had apostolic power, we probably could have pulled off a, a healed knee. Um, and I thought, well, if the maybe I ruined it because I was a doubting Presbyterian, you know, skeptical, uh, spiritless, and so forth. And but then I thought, well, that fellow thought that Paul was going to die when he was bit by the snake, and so it, it, doubting, and Paul didn't die, so. Uh, it seems to me probably I couldn't have ruined it. I, I thought about it later, and I, I wish I'd said, uh, you know, I'm a Calvinist. We've been doing without the Holy Spirit for 400 years, so I, <laughs> I think I'll just carry on. But Well, so there are, there are places where we gather for uh, preparation, planning for worship services. It's not just that the service is planned, but that the... the uh, the goal of these meetings is to structure things so that God's people have certain experiences at certain points in the service so that the, the keys of the music, and, the, and it's okay to figure out how to, I'm not musical at all, I mean I know what I like, it's okay to figure out how things are going to relate, but, but it's planned so that people will have a certain kind of experience at a certain point in the service. And we learned all of this in the middle of the 19th century from a fellow named Charles Finney who figured this all out and figured out... Basically, he was a great religious salesman and he figured out how to manipulate people emotionally, psychologically, and, and religiously. And since that time, we really haven't had much interest in things like baptism. I mean, after all, what is it? It's a, it's a font, right? And it's got a little bit of water in it. How exciting is that? That's just dumb. You're never going to... I mean, I, I had a friend in the radio business. I, I, I'm ashamed to say I worked in the radio business for a number of years. And I had a friend who was very successful, and he ran a hugely successful station. And he, and he came to me. We had lunch, and he took me up into a high hill, and he showed me all the kingdoms of the world. And, <laughs> and he said, just give me the word, and I'll fill your church. And uh, trust me, that was very tempting because uh, it wasn't full, and it wasn't a very big place. It wouldn't have been hard to fill it. I, I, and, and that's essentially what Charles Finney figured out, how to fill places and how to make people excited. And we, we, we think that that's Christianity. But it wasn't how we define Christianity. The Apostle Paul distinguished consistently between the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, for example, and the ordinary fruit of the Spirit. Now, you read the Apostle Paul, and you tell me in which of those two things is he more interested, the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit? I think you know the answer. I don't think we even have to, to think about that. Well, so what is the, what's the ordinary? And by ordinary, I don't just mean routine. I mean divinely ordained means by which God operates in the hearts and lives of His people, by which He brings us to faith, and by which He nurtures us in that faith, and by which He strengthens that faith, and by which He comforts us and consoles us and sustains us day by day, night by night, week by week, year by year, until your minister comes to visit you in the nursing home or in the hospital when you are... You know, laid out in a bed and hooked up to all kinds of awful, awful tubes and machines because that's the reality. I'm, I'm 40-something and I've buried a few of you and that's where you're all going. You know, the Lord delays every one of you, however successful, however healthy. Some of you are disgustingly healthy. You're all going to end up in a hospital bed if the Lord delays His return. And some minister is going to come and visit you. And all of those mountaintop experiences, they don't mean anything when you're in the hospital. They don't mean anything when, when you're, there's a machine next to you beeping and nurses are coming in and doing you know, horrible things to you at horrible hours of the day. 
I'm, I'm convinced they, I think they're trying to move you along. So they come in at three in the morning just to, just to sort of speed things up. <laughs> They've got a turnover rate and you're, you're just, you're slowing things down. I don't know that for a fact, I just have that hypothesis. So when you're, when you're laid out on that bed, what is it that sustains you? What is it that, that carries you through? What is it that you've, that you've built your life on? Is it that exciting new song or that, that experience you had back in 1987? Or is it the day by day, week by week, ordinary, and I mean that in two senses of almost routine, but divinely ordained means by which we live our Christian life. Well, let me, let, let me put it this way. Try this once, just for a week. Just eat one really good meal every three or four days. And don't have any ordinary, don't, don't have anything else. Just have one really fantastic meal every three or four days and see how you do. I don't think you'll do very well. I don't think you'll have the strength to prepare that fantastic meal unless you eat a little bit every day. And, a little, and you know, several, I think they want you to eat several small meals every day because that's how physically, bodily we are sustained. You've got to drink water, you've got to eat well, eat your vegetables and your fruit and all of that sort of thing. And you have to eat a balanced diet. Well, if it's true for your bodily, physical life, how much truer is it for your spiritual life that you need a steady, a steady spiritual diet of solid food and particularly uh, the grace of God? And what do we mean by the grace of God? What we mean is not some magical stuff with which you're injected. If you remember what R.C. said last night, that was the medieval view. It was like medicine. God uh, uh, sort of injects you. Dr. Godfrey, back when he was young, used to give a, a lecture about the medieval church, uh, which is really not history for him. Is sort of <laughs> these are his contemporaries. He's really very well preserved. So, and the hair is real. That's the disgusting thing about it. I washed mine this morning, and I can't do a thing with it. So. I'd, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make it on time. I just kept fiddling and fiddling. Bob Godfrey used to, to, to say that the, in the medieval church, they thought of grace as something like gasoline that you put in your tank. And you go to church every week to get a, a, a sort of in, an injection of gasoline into your car. And then, of course, during the week you sin and sort of burn off that gasoline and you go back and so you, you get filled in. You remember what R.C. said last night? You get filled up with this grace, and then you do your part. Isn't that nice? How'd you do this week, doing your part? How did you do from last night, doing your part? If you were to die right now, and you had to stand before the, the all-holy, all-righteous God on the basis of how you did, how well you did your part, any takers on that deal? I didn't think so. Not if you're honest. So how do we go then day by day, week by week, year by year? Well, the, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, uh, signs and seals. Romans 4, 1 through 12. Romans 4, 1 through 12. Romans 4, 1 through 12. What He says, what shall we say then was gained by Abraham. He's talking about how Father Abraham, the father of all believers, was right before God. And then how does that relate to, to how Jews and Gentiles are admitted into the church? What shall we say then? Was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, now listen to this, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, that is only for the Jewish, or also for the uncircumcised, that is also for the Gentile? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I want to go back to verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that Abraham believed when he was a Gentile, and he believed when he was a Jew. He believed before he was circumcised. He believed after he was circumcised. He was justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was justified before he was circumcised. He was justified after he was circumcised, and circumcision did two things according to the Apostle Paul in verse 11. It was a sign of that righteousness before God, that acceptance with God that he had by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that from John 8, 56, Jesus said, our Lord Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham was looking for Jesus. Abraham was trusting in Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that. That's why the Apostle Paul calls him the father of all who believe. Abraham is our father. Abraham, by the way, is not an old covenant person. I know you think, you might think he's an old covenant person because he, he occurred in, in history so long before Jesus. And isn't it the case that everything that happened before Jesus is all part of the Old Testament? That was then, this is now. No, not at all. If you pay close attention to the Apostle Paul, he's very careful to distinguish between Moses and Abraham. Moses was an Old Covenant Christian. The Old Covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, and, and uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews makes this clear in chapter 7 through 10, the Old Covenant belonged to Moses. That's a way of talking about the Mosaic Covenant. That's a way of talking about national Israel. Abraham lived in the, in the time of typology, in the time of, of types and shadows, of pictures, of, giant, of sermon illustrations, the time of looking forward to Jesus. That's certainly true. But he was a Christian. He's used consistently as the pattern for the Christian life, the Christian faith, and for the covenant of grace. We are Abraham's children. If you believe in Jesus, you have the same Savior as Abraham. If you believe in Jesus, you have the same faith as Abraham. That's a, that, I think that's very, very important to get that right. Why? Because just as God made promises, gospel promises to Abraham and gave signs and seals of that promise, he has made gospel promises to you in Jesus Christ. He's fulfilled the, thing, the promises he made to Abraham. And the, and the reality has come, the thing for which Abraham was looking. We, we are, are, are heirs and citizens of the heavenly kingdom for which Abraham was looking. We have the reality. We have the thing that he wanted. 
in his best days, in his best hours. We are his children. And just as God made promises to Abraham and gave signs and seals of those promises, so he has made promises to you and he has given signs and seals of those promises. What's a sign? A sign is something that points you to something else. The sign isn't the thing, but it's something that points to the thing. Now, we have people in our churches who are telling us that if you're baptized, you are right with God by virtue of your baptism. Well, Paul had people in his churches saying, if you're circumcised, you are right with God by virtue of your circumcision. And what did the Apostle Paul think of that? It's not by circumcision. It's not by works. You're not in by grace and staying in by faith and works. You are in by grace and you stay in by grace. It's grace first and last. If there's any works at all, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, there's, then it's not grace. These are two different principles. Abraham lived by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but God gave him a sign that is circumcision, and that sign pointed him to the reality. And it pointed everyone who knew about the sign to, real, to the reality. The sign testifies of certain things that are unshakably true because they are grounded in the promise of God. And as R.C. and Michael pointed out last night, God uh, swore an oath against his own life when that fire pot went between those pieces. How certain is the promise of God? Well, how certain is God? Has there ever been when God uh, was not? No. You remember Job? Finally, his friends kept poking at him, and finally he shook his fist at God. You know, you get all the way to chapter 38, and he finally says, Okay, God, I've had it. Let's talk. I'm, I'm filing a suit against you. You are unfair, and I'm filing a suit. He finally became an American. I'll see you in court. You'll hear from my lawyer. And so the trial date comes, and Yahweh shows up for trial, and, and, and he says, I, I just have one question for you, Job. Where were you when I was making everything out of nothing? Oh, that's right. You weren't there. Shut up. And that's the end of the trial. Very short trial. Job says, okay, well, you got me there. Where, when, when was God not? Well, he never, it never was. He always was, he is, he always shall be. And in fact, God can't be anything other than he is. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God is limited. It's true. He can't be anything other than what He is. Now, that's not much of a limit. I mean, the, the God who fills everything that can be filled with all of Himself all of the time from all eternity, unchangeably, knowing everything that, that He can know from all eternity perfectly, knowing, as I always tell my students, God knows what's happening in Tokyo, Berlin, and Los Angeles simultaneously. He's known it from all eternity. He knows everything that everyone is doing and, and the consequences that will happen from everything that everyone is doing all of the time. And he's known it from all eternity, and he knows it without even trying. Other than that, he, there, you know, he's, his hands are tied. I mean, other than being the... <laughs> omniscient deity who sovereignly created everything out of nothing and upholds everything by that same power, parts Red Seas and breaks the earth open, swallows people up, and, and will, when time is, is full, destroy this earth and make a new one, glorious new heavens and new earth. Other than that, I mean, it's just a part-time job, I mean.
So the sign points to the realities that were promised to Abraham, and that is the salvation that is to be found in Jesus Christ. But he also calls it something else. Before I go to the next thing, I want to make sure you get that. That's so important because people always want to turn the sign into the reality. And the sign isn't the reality. You've heard this a million times, I'm sure, but this wedding ring isn't my wife, just so we're clear. In fact, I, I have even a more high-tech example. This isn't a Rudy Giuliani thing. I won't answer the phone. But, but on my phone here is a, beautiful, a picture of a, of a hot blonde. That's my wife. And uh, Now, that's, that's a picture of my wife. And I suppose I could kiss it. It would be a little strange. But it's, it's not my wife. It's a sign of my wife. But it's not my wife. But it's a sign. It's an important sign. Every time I open the phone, I'm reminded that I have a beautiful wife and I'm married to her. We made promises. And I think, man, she must have not been thinking. (laughs) She was young and inexperienced. and I had worked cattle as a boy and I knew how to cut out a... It's not a very flattering analogy, but... Well, let's just say a young calf. You cut one out from the herd and pen them up and, so they don't know what's going on before she finds out she could do a lot better. So, uh, so the sign points to realities, but they're not the realities. But they are important. The signs are important. The signs perform a very important function, particularly when it is the case that the Lord has made promises to use those signs to accomplish His purposes. That's why we don't admit people to the Lord's table who aren't baptized, because they haven't received the sign and seal, and I'll get to seal in a second, of initiation into the covenant community. Because Jesus instituted a sign. And that sign is baptism. And that replaces the sign of circumcision as the sign and seal of initiation into the covenant community. It doesn't make you a new person. Baptism doesn't make you alive in Christ. Baptism doesn't unite you to Christ. But it does cut you off from the world outwardly. It does signify your incorporation into the visible community of God, and it does recognize the, the, the fact that you belong to the covenant of grace. And that's real. That's important. But there's a, it does a second thing sacraments do, and they seal. They seal. Now, this is, a, in some ways, a harder thing for us to understand, but it's not a very complicated idea. It's just that we don't do it that way, and we don't do it the way they used to do in the old days. In the old days, if you wanted to say that something was really important, right, you, you would take a wax and melt it and drip it onto the document, and then you would take a, a stamp or a ring or something and press it into that wax, and that said that this is an important document, and it, it also said, I, I guarantee that, that, that what's on this document is the truth. I guarantee that this is the truth. Now, we, we have electronic ways of doing that now. And we, we still seal things. It, uh, I remember filling out corporation papers one time for, for the church that I was pastoring. And, and uh, I, one of the things I learned is that, that anything I stamped with a corporate seal, you know, one of those, it's a little metal thing and you put the paper in there and you squeeze it and it presses a little seal, a raised seal into the document. Anything I stamped became a corporate document. I thought that was kind of interesting. I could just take random pieces of paper and stamp them and bang, it's a corporate document. And someday, you know, a hundred years from now, some poor secretary would be paging through these files and saying, why are all these weird random pieces of paper in our corporate files? Somebody with a sick sense of humor made all kinds of football programs into corporate documents. But that, that seal says that, the, that, that what's on this document is really true, and it's true about the, the corporation. And, and we seal things all the time in, in various ways. Uh, have you ever signed, if you've ever bought a house, you've signed lots of papers. 
right? You, you go in for the big signing, and you sign, and you sign, and you sign, and you initial here, and all that's to say that what I'm saying is true. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I really did make that much last year. Right? And I, really, I promise to pay back and all of that. It's really true. Those are different ways of sealing. A seal says that what has been promised is not only true in general, because a sign says that, that, that anybody who can see the sign, this is, there are certain things that are true in the world. A seal says... This is not only true in general, it's true specifically for those who believe. It's true specifically for those who believe. You know, of course, that Abraham was rebellious and and disobedient and and, and didn't always uh, live according to his profession and confession of faith. But we know Abraham was a believer. We know it because Scripture tells us he was a believer, and, and he could remember that, and trust me, he remembered the day that he took the sign and seal of the covenant, circumcision. He was an old man, and they didn't have high-tech laser uh, surgical imp- implements. He had a piece of flint rock that he, trust me, he sharpened that thing for a long time. <laughs> He sharpened and he sharpened. and he, I mean, in the ancient Near East, there's really not that much to do. I mean, it wasn't like, well, I've got to check my email and I've got to answer my cell phone and, and ESPN's got a thing. I mean, no, you're, it's the Middle East. You're sitting on a rock. It's 112 degrees and you've got a piece of flint rock and you've got this thing you have to do and you're old and there's no anesthesia. So you're just sharpening and sharpening and sharpening. He remembered that. I was five days old and I remember it. That procedure was a sign and a seal and it said to him everything that God promised to you is really true and it's true for you. In, uh, in, in our churches we use a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. And in the Heidelberg Catechism we, use, we, we have some language that says as certainly as I receive from the hand of the minister because in the old days, and, and still in some of our churches, the congregation comes down forward to receive communion. And the minister hands them the, the wine and the bread. And then they usually return to their seats, and then we all commune together. And so, just as the people of God can smell the wine, sometimes I've been known to, to you know, we, we pour, in fact, we do, we pour the wine before the service, and it sits there in the, in the all through the service, and you can smell it. I wish they would use better wine, but you can smell it. And, and, you, can, and you, can, you can smell the bread. And, and when the minister hands it to you, you can, you can feel the bread. Right? And, then when he, and then when he says, eat, we all eat, and you can taste the bread. And when he says, drink, we all drink, and you can, you can taste the wine. Right? I remember my first Reformed communion. I, I came to faith in another tradition, and we didn't use wine, and I didn't know that Christians used wine in, in communion. And I remember my first Reformed communion. I came forward, and it was a common cup, and, which was an adjustment. And uh, but he wiped it off. He handed me the cup, and I didn't know what was in there. I took a drink, and it was wine. And so it burned all the way down. It was a surprise. But just just as really as I felt that wine going down my throat and tasted it in my mouth and received it from the minister, as really as I experienced those things, so certainly true are the promises of God to us in Jesus Christ. How are you going to live day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, till finally you end up in that hospital bed? 
you live it by making use of the means of grace, the means of being signified, reminded of the promises of God when you see it. And and then having those promises sealed to you when you receive it. Our sovereign God, who has sovereignly elected all of his people from all eternity, administers that sovereign election and sovereign elect sovereign electing grace in time in history, in the midst of his people. He has appointed instruments, and to those instruments he has attached promises through which he ordinarily brings his people to faith, and by that I mean the preaching of the gospel, and by which he strengthens that faith and gives us grace to grow. Let me say that again. Our sovereign God has appointed instruments and has attached promises to them through which he ordinarily brings his people to faith and through which he gives them grace to grow. You say to me, Pastor, my spiritual life is a little dry. And I say, welcome to the club. Because the truth is that's what happens. But then I say to you, are you attending to the means of grace? Are you attending to the means of grace? Or are you busy on Sunday and you just couldn't make it? It's the same thing when my children say to me, Dad, I'm, I'm hungry. They're 16 and 18. They're old enough to feed themselves. In fact, they're starting to look at me with suspicion like, what are you doing, old man? You're... You're in our way. Get out of the way. Get out of the kitchen. They say to me, I'm hungry. I say, eat something. Well, there's nothing to eat. Did you open the fridge? No. Did you look in the pantry? No. Well, I don't have much sympathy. My mom used to say, your arms aren't broken. You say to me, I'm, I'm dry, Pastor. And I say to you, have you been attending to the means of grace? Have you heard, Dr. Horton uses that wonderful expression, the gospel, has the gospel been preached into you? And if the gospel isn't being preached into you on a weekly basis, and if it isn't being signified to you, I would say, in the, Lord, in the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Now, that's a whole other argument, and we can have that discussion sometime if you want. If it isn't being signified to you and sealed to you on a regular basis, on a frequent basis, how's that? Then of course you're dry. Of course you're dry. If you haven't eaten, of course you're hungry. If you, haven't dr- if you hadn't had any water, of course you're thirsty. These are the things that God has ordained. Jesus only left us two sacraments. And it's it's just astounding to me that people think that they can get by without using them. And honestly, I, I, I cannot understand that. Because I don't know how spiritual you are, but but most of the time I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. And I know you people are probably right next to perfection, but I'm a long way from it. My heart is is corrupt. My heart is black. And my, my mind is full of nonsense and foolishness. And my will is bent. So I love the wrong things. I think the wrong things. I will. I choose the wrong things. I say the wrong things. I do the wrong things. And of course, those wrong things are sin. And, and it's a struggle day by day. You know, we, we talk about dying to self and living to Christ. Amen. I'd like to have some of that. How do I get some of that? Well, here are six steps. Really? 
What is that from Second Philippians? No. The same we get the we, 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 we have the dying and the making alive the same way that the that, that Abraham did, and that's through the divinely ordained means of grace. Now, you you might say to me, Well, Pastor, that, that's just not very exciting. And I can sympathize with it because on one level it isn't very exciting. But let me challenge you. If you think, for example, let's just take the Lord's Supper because that's the thing that we do on a regular basis. That's the thing that we repeat. If you think that eating the body of Christ is not exciting, then I think maybe you have a funny definition of exciting. I don't know if you realize that that's what we say and that's how we understand the Word of God. And... Jesus did say, by the way, this is my body. Our Lutheran friends say that is means with, that his body is with the bread and the wine. Our evangelical and Zwinglian friends say that uh, is, when he said this is my body, it means this reminds me of the body, which is partly true. But And our Roman Catholic friends say that is means becomes, that this becomes the body, we say is, which is good because that's what Jesus said. And we're the only ones who say is. This is my body. If, if, if coming to the table of the Lord and receiving and eating by faith, not by magic, through the work of the Holy Spirit, eating the body and blood of our Lord, to be fed on the body and blood of our Lord. In John 6, uh, 53, Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. If that doesn't move you, you need a redefinition. You need a redefinition. You, you want real spiritual life? Come to the Lord's table and be fed by the body of Christ. Now, where is that body? It's in heaven. And we get lifted up into the presence of Christ. And by the work of His Holy Spirit, He feeds us with Himself. He told the disciples, it's good for you if I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And, the, and we're going to talk about this later this morning. The Holy Spirit connects us to Christ and the Holy Spirit operates through those divinely appointed means, particularly the Lord's Supper, to feed us and strengthen us and to connect us and to renew us. Now, this isn't knocking people over by hitting them on the forehead. I realize that. And it's not the Toronto blessing, and it's not any of the things that people seem to think are interesting and exciting in our time. But it does have one thing going for it. It's what Jesus told us to do. It seems to me that if we want a vital spiritual life, if we want to grow, if we want to become more Christ-like, if we want to, if we want, uh, uh, to, to, to uh, come to grips with some of the things that we're dealing with in our lives, if we want to be sure of the promises of God, if we want to know deep in our souls, right, in our bones, that it's true. And it's not just true for, for some folks. It's not just true for them and for, for them, but it's true for me. So that at 3 o'clock in the morning, when your minister isn't there, and it's just you in the darkness, and those beeping machines, and you cry out to the Lord and you say, Oh Lord, is it really true? Is it true for me? Did you die for me? Did you live for me? Were you raised for me? 
Do I belong to you? When I take that last breath, am I going to see your face? You think about that bread and that wine and how it burned and how it tasted and how it smelled and how it felt and just as surely as you tasted it and you smelled it, as surely as the water was on your forehead when, when the minister baptized you with a decent a Presbyterian amount of water, just as surely as those things happen, if you trust Jesus, it's not magic. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you trust the Lord Jesus at all, I'm not saying how much, you either have it or you don't have it. Either the lights are on or they're off. Either you have faith, right? Bob Dylan says, either you got faith, you got unbelief. If you trust the Lord Jesus, then just as certainly as the water was on your forehead, as certainly as you received the, the, the elements of communion, so certainly does he love you. And nothing that happens in that hospital, nothing anyone says to you, nothing that the evil one whispers in your ear can change that. It's so certain. It's a sign of what's true and it's a seal. It's a guarantee. It's really true. And it's true for you. I hope this morning that, that as you meditate on this and as you meditate on this passage that, and as you come to the Lord's table next time, you will begin to redefine what it is that excites you and that moves you and that you will want to be fed by the grace and the, and the, and the body of our Lord to be strengthened, to love Him and to serve and love your neighbors. Thank you.